0: Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest who just published a book, which I finished yesterday, a fascinating true crime book. The title of the book is Cold-Blooded, a true crime story of a murderous teenage vampire cult, published May 25th. His name is Frank Stanfield, and he's also published uh, two other books. One is Vampires, Gators, and Wackos: A Newspaperman's Life, published 2014, and Unbroken, published 2011. But this is the story of the what's known as the Vampire Clan, colloquially. But I also did some research into this for my book, Abomination, so I'm somewhat familiar with that. But uh, Frank has first-person uh, insight into this case, so he's going to tell us about that and his book. So, Frank, are you there? I am here. Thank you awesome. for having me. Yeah, thanks for agreeing to the interview. Fascinating book. For people who may not have heard your name, can you talk a little bit about your background and what led you to write *Cold Blooded*?
1: Sure. Um, I was—I've been a newspaper editor and reporter for 40 years. I was working for the Orlando Sentinel back in 1996 when this happened, first happened, and I've been covering the thing for over 20 years ever since. So um, I'm still doing some newspaper work, and uh, and i, I just just—I'm hooked. I got. Uh, Ink in my blood, I guess. So,
0: <laughs> gotcha. And uh, so, this happened, Orlando. This was north, was where the murders kind of came to press. Can you talk about the crime and what happened in this city north of uh, Orlando?
1: Yes, uh, Eustace is this is about a uh, small town. It's about um, forty five miles north of uh, uh, Orlando, you know, which of course is famous for Disney World and all that good stuff. Um, What happened was On November the 25th, 1996 A a girl A 17-year-old cheerleader At the local high school A popular and Pretty girl She comes home And finds that her Parents have been bludgeoned to death Um, And it's just a complete nightmare I mean, the scene is, Is just horrific There's blood everywhere Um so she gets on the phone and calls nine one one and says, "Please, um, my parents have been killed." And the dispatcher says, "Well, how do you know they've been killed?" She says, "Because there's blood everywhere." Uh, so when the detectives get there and start to talk with her, they say, "Who could have done this?" Oh, and the other thing was, she said to the nine one one operator was, "And my sister's not here. She's only fifteen years old. She's not here." So when the detective starts talking to uh, jennifer windor um she's they they ask how you know, who could have done it and she says well my sister heather and she by the way she had a friend named rod farrell so that's how the thing got started this was um probably about 10 o'clock at night something like that this is a quiet area kind of a rural suburban area and um Just nothing like this had happened in this area before.
0: And there were some kind of indicators of something even more strange happening at the crime scene. Wasn't there like 666 and there was a V on the body? Is that correct?
1: Yes. um, Somebody had taken a wet finger and written uh, 666 on the garage door. Um, So nobody knows to this day exactly who did that. Um, But the medical examiner gets in there. And she looks at the bodies, of course, and she notices there's a V mark uh, on um, the dad's arm. And um, it looked like somebody had put, like, burn marks with a cigarette or something on his, on his arm. And then there were, like, uh, some dots in there. So um, the police, of course, are trying to figure all this out. They call uh, up in uh, Mary, Kentucky, because that's where Rod Farrell had moved to from Eustace. And uh, the sheriff up there says, you've got a really wild bunch on the loose there. He says there are members of this vampire clan or cult. And and so somebody up there, uh, one of the vampire fanciers up in Kentucky says, oh, that V is a sign of Rod Farrell's cult. That's his sign.
0: Yeah, it wasn't his kind of cult name. It was Visaggio, right? It was a demon from the Goetia. Is that right? Something like
1: that. He was telling uh, all these kids that he was a vampire, 500 years old, and uh, his name was Visago.
0: And so they found this guy, Rod Farrell. How did the police investigation uh, proceed from the night of the murders?
1: Well, of course, they uh, they talked to everybody they could uh, locally. Uh, They found out that... um, that Rod had come down, this, this murder happened on a Monday night, that Rod had come down on uh, a Sunday and uh, visited a friend of, of theirs, uh, of his, I should say, from, from when he went to high school in Eustis. And uh, she says, well, they came in with this bunch and uh, they were talking about killing uh, Heather's parents but I didn't know why I didn't believe him. Uh, he said they wanted to steal their car. I just didn't believe him. Well, so then they got to talking with Heather's boyfriend and they found out more about Rod, um, because this boyfriend didn't want to run away with these other kids. And, uh, he's talking about Heather doing self mutilation and drinking her blood and that kind of thing. Hit, he- uh, Heather drinking her own blood, that kind of thing. And, um, Then they call, like I say, the sheriff up in Murray, Kentucky, and they find out that, uh, among other things, that he was a suspect in this horrific uh, animal abuse case. He, he, uh, a cult had broken into this place and mutilated a whole bunch of dogs and killed them and just awful. So they're putting all this together and figuring out who Rod Farrell is.
0: And so they found out some very interesting things about Rod Ferrell. Can you talk about his background and his relationship with his mom?
1: Yes. Um, his mother uh, had been arrested uh, for uh, trying to solicit sex with a 14-year-old boy, one of Rod's friends. And they called it uh, crossover. She wanted to cross him over to be a vampire, this boy, um, while having sex with him. So uh, this... His mother was arrested. And uh, Rod was a dropout from school. Um, He uh, was just a bad character. He was in this cult. And it turns out, uh, the mom says, well, Rod threatened me that uh, he had built uh, an altar in his bedroom, painted his whole bedroom black, had all this occult jazz uh, in his room, skulls and whatnot. And then they find out one of his best friends was a vampire fancier and uh, they hung out all night in uh, cemeteries and uh, played all these vampire role-playing games, Vampire the Masquerade. So they're building a very strong uh, case and talking to all these people right away.
0: Right. So, and Farrell, didn't they say, I think you wrote in your book, they had his own house, had a pentagram on the floor somewhere. So the mother had to kind of know, what was going on with her 15-, 16-year-old son. He was very young at the time.
1: Right. Uh, in fact, that pentagram was in her bedroom. Uh, when she moved out uh, of her apartment, they found this pentagram on the wall, on the floor. And the manager says, well, both the mom and the son, we thought, a lot of people thought they were boyfriend and girlfriend because they both dressed in black, had black fingernails and all that kind of stuff, and were holding hands walking around the parking lot it was very odd.
0: Gotcha. And can you can you get closer to the mic microphone? It seems like the somebody's hearing you a little lower. Um and but he also like he was into demonology. It was interesting that he knew about mind control. He was, uh, he was only 16 when the crime happened. So very young, but also just a very strange kind of uh, person and the necronomicon was involved in in the whole case. There was just a, all the elements of this occultism there, right?
1: That's right. He, um, he spent a lot of his time um, with some friends, and they made up all these role-playing games. Well, one of the, besides that, um, they they were like characters, and his favorite character was a vampire that could kill or do anything he wanted to do. They they practiced with wooden weapons and all kinds of stuff like that. Well, Rod spent a lot of his time, this friend said, uh, studying psychology and also black magic. Trying to figure out how to do mind control, uh, he said, if you make people fear you, you can control them. It's all about control. You know, it's all about you know mind control. And of course, he also summoned up. Uh, he would try to sum up these, uh, call up these demons, these various demons. So he's very into demonology, and uh, in this Necronomicon book, um, he had that. And they were trying to cast spells. So he was interested in witchcraft at one point, demonology, and then he became good friends with uh, this other guy, and he was um, interested in the vampires. So right? Was that Jaden Murphy? Jaden Murphy? Jaden Stephen Murphy. Right, so Jade. that's where they got. Uh, he got involved in that.
0: And there's actually like a video of Murphy online. Like I don't know what documentary it was, but they're talking about drinking blood. They're together at some fire at night. So. These guys, it was a much larger group than just Farrell's group. It was this whole subculture of vampirism and blood drinking, and they used to, like, cut their arms. Even both of the Wendorf kids, who were the children of the Wendorfs, were, I think, involved in bloodletting. Is that correct?
1: Well, uh, Heather was. Um, Heather was, uh, but, yes, in Kentucky, there was a, a large group, maybe as many as 30, the police seemed to think, Uh, in this vampire clan but then you know they got to fighting amongst each other and splitting off and that kind of thing so um, by the time Rod came down to Florida he came with uh, three other people Um, and that's uh, and then they picked up Heather Um, and then this is is where it gets interesting because the question is did Heather know her parents are going to be killed? Did she plan it? Was she in on the planning was it was she a victim? You know what was what was going on with Heather? That's always a, a question in everybody's mind.
0: Yeah, and that will kind of per- pervade your entire book: is how involved was she? People seem to be covering for her. She denied it, but it seemed like they knew that Farrell had a real mean streak too. Like he was talking about killing people for months before the murders, right?
1: Yeah, he was obsessed. Um, for example, um, Heather told her sister her sister. Jennifer had a, uh an abusive boyfriend at the time, and um, so Heather says, "Well, do you want him dead? Because I know this guy that could do it," meaning Farrell. Um, and then one time, she she asked uh, Jennifer one night, she says, "Jen, have you ever thought about plotting Mom and Dad's death?" And Jennifer says, "I just blew that off," you know, no end of discussion right there. But um, but yeah, Heather was. Uh, writing all kinds of really dark entries in her journal and uh, talking about being a hideous monster, being feel like she's being torn in two and how she likes to drink blood and um, all this stuff. And then uh, Farrell was sending all this material, all his writings and drawings and so on. Both Heather and Rod were artistic types. They could draw very well. So they found a lot of this stuff in her room. So um, and Rod Rod's girlfriend, um, his girlfriend when he was in Florida, I should say, was Heather's best friend, Janine. So. So Heather was keeping all this material in her room because uh, Janine's parents didn't like Rod. Gotcha.
0: And they had didn't Rod had say he had some kind of cult background, like there was a grandfather and there was supposedly this black mask group. But well, that was never verified. Can you talk about that?
1: Yes, um, when he, when the group was arrested, they were arrested in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, three days after the murder. So Rod tells the the cops, he he says, look, I'll tell you everything. I just want to talk to my girlfriend, the girlfriend that he brought down from Kentucky with him. Her name is Charity Kisa, Kesey. And he says, I just want to talk to her. So then he starts talking about how he's disturbed and um that he says i was raped at five years old by my grandfather's friends they were in this um a group called the black mask and they sack they made a human sacrifice um and so it's part of the ritual you know they rape me and all this sort of jazz so um that's where that comes from but uh it's interesting, during the trial, when they, later on when they had the trial, um, the, uh, the grandfather's wife says, no, he wasn't part of any cult or whatever. And I asked the grandfather myself at the trial. Um, he didn't testify, but I asked him out in the hall. I says, well, did you rape, um, did you and your friends rape Rod? Were you in his cult? And he said, no. So... <laughs>
0: And they did the trial, it, they got extradited back to Florida, right? So where did that trial, it was close to Orlando, is that correct, where you were located?
1: Yes, it's in, it was in Tavares, which is the county seat in Lake County. Um, so
0: you were there, like, and you saw when the news broke and everything like that, how the story kind of developed through the media. Can you talk about that Your your involvement?
1: Yes, um, this was one of those rare cases where, well, You know the Sentinel, all newspapers really are kind of a shadow of their their former selves, unfortunately, these days. But uh, the Sentinel had a big bureau in um, in Tavares, the county seat in Lake County, and uh, so they immediately sent reporters to uh, Baton Rouge for the extradition. They sent them to Kentucky to find out what was going on. They sent them everywhere, Um, and I was the court reporter for that bureau. So. I was very fortunate because we decided we were going to cover every piece of paper, every hearing, every everything. We were going to talk to everybody that was a witness. I mean, we just covered that thing like a blanket. So it was very interesting.
0: And you, and you have all those names of the prosecutor, the judge. So you saw that firsthand. What was your impression of Farrell and that group when you first kind of saw them? I mean, weren't they, they kind of strange in a way? Oh yeah.
1: Well, when they brought him back from um, Baton Rouge, um, they brought him back, and one of the girls, um, she was like twenty years old, I believe she was. So she, they, she was an adult. They brought her back earlier. But uh, Farrell and uh, his girlfriend Charity um, and Heather um, and Scott Anderson, who was um, actually went into the house with Rod, um, they brought them back they Brought him to the jail. They brought him inside the jail, and uh, Farrell is like sticking his tongue out at the photographers. And then he goes inside the jail, and there's a like a glass partition there in the booking area. And he smooches that thing, you know, he's just showing off and acting like a complete jerk, you know. Um, that was interesting. So, that was my first time that I actually saw him. So I'm thinking, okay, this is what we're going to be dealing with. It's going right. to be like a three ring circus. All right.
0: And so, so then, I mean, you saw him and these other girls, uh, how did that, how did he progress? Didn't he try to feign kind of insanity for his own benefit?
1: Oh yeah. So what happened was um, I sent a letter to the jail app to him asking for an interview. I said, and I've done this many times before with other people. I said, "Okay, so we're getting uh, all the information we're getting is from one source, from one side, is from the police and the prosecutors. Uh, But there's always two sides to every story. We'd like to hear your story. So um, I dropped the note off with my phone number on there and everything, and um, I waited and waited and waited, and then I went home. And then he called, and so two other reporters have been running over there and uh, and talked with him." and the headline in The Sentinel the next day was Interview with a Vampire, which is the takeoff on the Anne Rice movie book. So um, basically he says, yeah, he says, I've got multiple personalities, you know, like Sybil, and uh, I have these special blackout moments, and I don't know, sometimes I'm mellow, sometimes I'm not, and then he he claims that um, Anderson, his buddy Anderson, went into the house, and he was like, taking a nap by a tree and Anderson had borrowed his boots and all kinds of silly stuff like that. And, and it was like complete nonsense. And the the sheriff and the prosecutor said, well, that's the first we've heard of any kind of multiple personality thing. And um, I interviewed some people and some psychiatrists in Miami and they said, that's so rare. That dissociative disorder is so rare. We don't even know if it's for real or not, if anybody has it.
0: Right, so, so it, it didn't quite help him. I mean, he he was charged, but there were also other people in that group were charged, right? Goodman, and who who else got charged in the murders?
1: Okay, it was Scott Anderson. Um, the, both of those guys were charged with first-degree murder. Then uh, the two girls were charged with uh, a principal uh, to murder, and an armed um, burglary, um, some other charges like that. Heather... Um, was charged by the cops, but in Florida, if you're going to be charged with first-degree murder, you have to be indicted by a grand jury. So they have a grand jury, and they indict everybody but Heather. Now, she's still under arrest in in a juvenile detention center. They move everybody else to adult jail. And, uh, so the sheriff is really getting ticked off. Sheriff George Knuff at that time. And, uh, so then they have another grand jury to deal with her, and she testifies, um, she, I, you can invoke the Fifth Amendment, you know, right to remain silent, but she waived that and testified before the grand jury and said, I didn't know my parents were gonna be harmed. So the grand jury cut her loose. All right, interesting. Yeah, and so people were, I mean, the sheriff was incensed, you know, and a lot of people, The grand jury said what she did was wrong, running away was wrong, hanging out with these people was wrong, but it's not a crime. She didn't commit a crime because she said she didn't know her parents were going to be killed.
0: And there is some truth to that. Like Farrell didn't know that he was going to, I mean, according to him, it wasn't planned that he was going to do it either, right? At least that's what he said, but that's the way it turned out, right? Him, Him and Goodman were in the house, right?
1: It was uh, him and Anderson, Scott Anderson. Anderson,
0: it, sorry, wrong name. Yeah, yeah
1: Anderson. Anderson. Yeah, they uh, they were in the house, um, but Farrell is the one that that did the blows. Um, the other kid just kind sort of froze up. Um, but it, what happened was they went in there. This is like this is one reason it's called cold blooded. They went in there, and they went in there with a couple of sticks, basically. But they found, uh, Rod found a uh, crowbar or a tire iron, one or the other, in a garage. He picked that up. And so they go in, and the dad is asleep in the family room. TV's on, or uh, it's dark, rather. Um, And they sort of dance around him while he's asleep. And they, like, Rod lowers the the tire iron like he's going to hit him, and then he doesn't, you know, and this goes on about three times and finally he says you know something told me I shouldn't do this there might be bad consequences then I said oh what the heck basically and just hit him about 20 times till he wasn't even recognizable the mom Ruth Queen her name uh, that was Richard Windorf the victim there The, the mom Ruth Queen comes out of the bedroom she'd been in the shower She's got hot coffee in her hand, and she says, what do you want? And then she realized, you know, that this is a bad thing, so she threw the coffee in his face, and that outraged him, so he beat her to death and took the blunt end, or the sharper end of it, and <laughs> dug it into her skull. It was just horrific, just a horrific crime scene, it was awful.
0: Yeah, I mean I think you said overkill in your book like it was too much or something. Yeah, it was like oh like the yeah, horrific uh, injuries. And so how did the how did the the intro to the trial go? I mean, he's 16 at the time and he got tried as an adult. Is that correct?
1: That's right. Which is a kind of a common thing in Florida uh has been for a while for a serious crime like this. So in Florida, if you want to um have a death penalty case, you have two phases. First phase is called the guilt phase where you decide whether or not the guy did it or not. And then if he's guilty on that, then the jury has to um, hear testimony, mitigating evidence, uh, psychologists or whatever they want to put out there, uh, why he shouldn't be killed. And the prosecutor has to argue that he should be killed under under certain statutory requirements. So to avoid... Um, the death penalty, Um, Farrell gets up on the first day of the trial, right after it started, even before the opening argument is finished for the prosecutor. He gets up, basically, and says, I want to plead guilty in hopes that the prosecutor would not seek the death penalty. But the the, uh, state attorney uh, Brad King, who was a Uh, a a proponent of the death penalty says, no, I have an obligation to present a case and we're going to continue on. So it goes from there.
0: And how did that case progress? I mean, you go in detail on all that court. Were you in court for most of those proceedings?
1: I was in court for all of it. Um, Yes. What happened was in the death penalty phase, well, during when he was first arrested, when Rob was first arrested and all those kids, the prosecutor and the defense attorney, who is the public defender, assistant public defender, they put out a press release saying, look, this thing has nothing to do with vampirism. You know, it's just a, call it the Windorf case or whatever, but, you know, it's nothing to do with vampirism. Well, when they get into the uh, trial, now all of a sudden, as far as the defense is concerned, it's all about vampirism. You know, he the, the object is to show that he, he couldn't help himself because um, he was under the influence of uh, the occult. He had a terrible childhood, you know, all this stuff, um, because the defense knew they were in big trouble because Broad made all that confession to the cops, not only to the uh, Baton Rouge police, but also to the Lake County detectives who drove up there to, to interview him and the other kids. So they had all this uh, confession, and it was on videotape. And the judge allowed uh, was ruled that a lot of it was going to be admissible. So they knew they were in big trouble. And uh, but you know the defense, that was their strategy, and they had all these psychologists to talk about how he was uh, under emotional duress and um, all this sort of thing, and he couldn't help himself basically.
0: Right. Like he was destined to do it. Then they they, they diagnosed him with it, schizotypal personality disorder or something
1: like that. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So it gets to be a very, um, but it's interesting because the state, they had three psychologists or psychiatrist one psychiatrist, two psychologists testify. And one of those psychologists was, he says, I've um, interviewed 700 murder defendants. And this is the most dysfunctional family I've ever seen. Um, so that was interesting. But the, the state didn't put on any psychologists. He just basically um, kept poking holes in the testimony of these psychologists. They, um, they go on this thing called the DSM, the Diagnostic uh, Psychological Manual, you know, it's like the psychologist bible,
0: basically. Right, right.
1: And so they would say, "Oh, well, schizotypal." And then he says, "Well, couldn't he also have been, you know, diagnosed as conduct disorder, which is like setting fires, lying, and you know, animal abuse, and all that kind of stuff?" Basically, just sort of throwing shade on their on their theory, you know. So, um, and then of course there was DNA. Uh, that was very interesting too there was d what happened was ruth queen fought rod fought him very hard she dug her fingernails into his face so as he was killing her so the d there was dna of him underneath her fingernails so basically i said how bitter an irony that was that she pointed out her killer from the grave with his blood it, it was like his blood under her fingernails and it, her his blood or rather her blood on his boots uh, so that was you know it was obvious it was just so obvious um, right
0: he didn't really have a chance he was going to go down I mean they had the boot prints right from the boots he was wearing when he was arrested in Baton Rouge yeah, wasn't what was their rationale to go to Baton Rouge anyway? Wasn't there some draw there?
1: Well, what they were going to do—the uh, plan was, if you want to call it a actual plan—it wasn't much of a plan. They were going to go to New Orleans. Supposedly, Rod was—he uh, was fascinated with the place, and, and I nobody's ever said this, but I can't help but wonder if he wanted to go see where Ann Rice lived. Um, but. The plan was they were going to go to Mardi Gras, even though Mardi Gras wasn't like for several months. But he told these kids that he knew this um, voodoo character up there at New Orleans named the Chicken Man. And they were going to hang out there and, you know, delve more into the occult. Well, they get up there and Charity uh, is freaking out because – it's, they go into a bad neighborhood. And she sees people with guns and she's just freaking out. She's let's get out of here. So they leave there after only a few hours and start driving. They end up in the, in the woods somewhere between New Orleans and Baton Rouge. and they rob a house, you know burglarize a house, I should say. And then they end up in Baton Rouge. It's Thanksgiving Day. Everything's closed. They don't have any money. They were gonna pawn some of the stuff they stole. They, um, you know, they're they're broke, they're dirty and hungry, and so Charity calls her grandmother to get a hold of her mother. And the mom says, "Okay, look, go to the nearest um, Howard Johnson uh, and stay there, and I'll, I'll wire the money and so on." And the, it was a trap they get they get arrested
0: right that's what led to their arrest but they tried to get as much money out of the wendorf house too right so they didn't weren't very successful in obtaining no. money go yeah it was just a real haphazard plot or plan.
1: yeah they got a credit card which they used somewhat they went up to tallahassee um they basically followed the interstates they went up to tallahassee on i-75 they used a credit card up there Went to a Walmart, got a few things, including a knife. Um, But then I think he realized, you know, they could trace this credit card. So they got rid of the credit card. Um, So it was just a a haphazard adventure at the most.
0: And Scott Anderson, would you think, do you think that he was really under Farrell's sway? Was he kind of like mind controlled or was he subject to Farrell's personality?
1: He was uh, a follower. Um, his his defense attorney described him as a follower, and I think that's, that's a fair statement. His background, his family background was just awful. Um, it was like something out of Tobacco Road or Grapes of Wrath or something. It was just awful. I mean, um, his parents, his dad was addicted to all kinds of drugs, had all kinds of mental illnesses. The family had... Uh, he and his brothers were put into foster care because the uh, the dad was abusing the mom, and the mom refused to, you know, go along with the social services people, and it was just awful. Just and poverty, oh brother, it's just awful. So he was, he said, I was just looking for an identity, basically. So here's this kid, um, Charity, um, being raised by her single parent dad Um, this other girl Dana Cooper the adult she was um, basically working in a dead-end kind of job I'll come for Scott Anderson but yes uh, he was facing the death penalty too so he pleaded guilty to um, first-degree murder and got sentenced to life so what happened later is the Supreme Court keeps moving the goalpost. Um, The Florida Supreme Court decided about a year after Rod is sentenced to death row that we shouldn't be sentencing uh, 16-year-olds or persons that commit a crime like this when they're 16 to death row. So they commuted uh, Rod's sentence to life. So years later, the U.S. Supreme Court has this case called Miller versus Alabama and some other cases where they said, you know, juveniles' brains are still developing. Uh, and your brain is uh, still developing until you're 25 years old, the doctors say. So we don't think you should automatically sentence juveniles to life in prison. So therefore, you have to give them a, a hearing, a special hearing, a resentencing hearing. So Scott got his resentencing hearing and got his life sentence reduced to 40 years, a couple of years ago. And I had interviewed him uh, in the jail over there. And so um, it's an interesting thing. When the trial, the initial trial was going on, his mother uh, took their social security, the family social security money check and flew to Orlando with one of her kids without any money in her pocket and called the sentinel and says, okay, we're here uh, to the reporter that talked with him in Kentucky, Jerry Falstrom. And Jerry says, Uh what do you mean? What do you mean you're here? I mean, I he had no clue. She was going to come. It was like one of those things like, well, if you're in Florida, look me up kind of thing, you know? So she shows up and I, it's my job now to go pick her up and this boy and try to find them a place to stay. Um, so that's how I got to know his mother. So when S- Scott is back in Lake County several years later, um, I reminded Scott. I says, well, I'm the one that picked up your mother from the airport. So it sort of gave me an in. And, right. you know, Scott is uh, was a pitiful person, basically. You know, he was like, he was 17 and he just... Decided to throw in with the the wrong guy. You know, basically, it was. I mean, he he should be punished. He is being punished, but um, he did not. He's not the uh, motivator, uh, the driving force behind this awful crime. And is he?
0: So he's still in jail. Is yeah. he due to be? Is he due to be released, or how long he's been in there for? What thirty years now,
1: right? Yeah, he's going to get out. I think in twenty fifty. I think it is. Oh wow.
0: So, yeah. so he's in there for the duration. Yeah, yeah that's a tragedy. Yeah. So his life, and he kind of blames Farrell for his the wreckage of his life, right? Well, absolutely. Yeah.
1: He says, if I had just not gotten in the car, it was his little car that they came down to Florida in. He says, if I'd have just driven away and said, "No, we're not doing this," then my life would be different. Wow, yeah.
0: And you were in an uh, Oxygen Channel documentary called Deadly Colts with Feral, right, in 2019? Can you talk right. about that?
1: Yes. Um, that was very interesting, too, because, um, again, they talked with uh, Jaden. Um, and that, that was a, a real insight to Jaden, too. Jaden, this whole vampire thing is. Um, it's supposed to be a big secret, you see. But Rod um, messed it all up. There's a, a, a vampire rules, as it turns out. You're not supposed to uh, not supposed to tell anybody you're a vampire, and there are certain rules, like you're not supposed to take blood from somebody that um, that involuntarily, and you're not supposed to kill people, and um, you're supposed to keep everything on the down low, and all this sort of thing. So this publicity from this case just blew this all out. But it's interesting because Jaden in this uh, documentary was very um, vocal about his interest in vampirism. Unlike it twenty years ago, he was like, "Oh, I was just doing role playing and you know stuff like that." I was he really downplayed it then, and but he came out in this documentary and talked about how it's like. Uh, it stirred his soul the nighttime, called me, and you know, all that kind of stuff. And I, he, I interviewed him during the trial, too. And he said, Uh, vamp, you know, vampires. I'm not, a, I, I know I'm a vampire, but it's a lifestyle. And he says, Uh, Farrell told me, um, that you know, if he did kill anybody, ever did kill anybody, it'd be by bludgeoning them, which of course he did. Wow.
0: Yeah, I'm really disturbing. I mean, do you know if he uh, Murphy is still involved in that whole subculture, the vampire yeah. sub? He is. So he is. And these guys are like gotta be in their fifties, right? Forties or fifties? Forties, uh, I think. Forties, gotcha. Yeah,
1: because um, they were classmates. Uh, Jaden was a classmate of Rod's at, in of Kentucky.
0: Gotcha. Well, Frank, we are at 40 minutes, really a fascinating book, fascinating interview for, from first person accounts of this whole case. Is there anything you'd like to add? Anything I missed before we wrap the interview up?
1: Um, well, yes, there, Rod had a rehearing. So he had this rehearing of, in uh, 2019 and um, this went on for like three days. And there was a new set of psychologists who said, look, he had abused drugs. He had been misled by Heather. Heather said that he was, um, had been, uh, Heather said she'd been abused by her father and all this stuff. And the family, uh, Jennifer um, said, told the judges, don't let this guy out. Don't let him out, ever. And uh, the other side of the family, um, Ruth Queen's family, um, were also very upset. They were there. And uh, Richard Windorf's uh, brother, One of his brothers testifies, don't, don't let him out. It was just, my brother was just killed for the thrill of it, you know, uh, that kind of thing. So the judge listened to all this testimony and uh, the state did present a uh, psychologist this time. who said, no, he, he wasn't suffering from schizotypal um, disorder. He had some personality disorders, but it wasn't that. So basically after uh, several weeks the judge issued a ruling and says no um Farrell is incorruptibly corrupt he's got a history of lying he lies about everything um he shows no remorse basically even though Farrell got on the stand and apologized to the family Interesting. He says, i'm sorry i did you know i was i was just i didn't know what i, I don't want to say he didn't know what he was doing but he says i didn't know what my my actions would have this kind of consequences and all this—he seemed emotional. He seemed genuine, but he lies so much. You know, how do you believe anything he says? So the judge says no. He stays in prison
0: forever. So he's in there forever. Wow. Yeah, although, great book. I'm sorry. Continue, please.
1: I was gonna say, although <laughs> that's under appeal now. So who knows?
0: So that's the system. Where can people? Where's the best place for people to find this book and your other books?
1: um amazon um is the probably the best place and also wild blue press um you can order that my book on wild blue press also and i have a web uh, page it's frankestanfield.com
0: frankestanfield.com that's s-t-a-n-f-i-e-l-d and are you planning to do an audio version of the book
1: Yes, they're doing an audio version right now. Awesome.
0: So that's it. Right now, Like half of the book sales are now an audio version, so that's really important to get that out so people can listen to it as well. And, again, uh, the title of the book is Cold-Blooded, A True Crime Story of a Murderous Teenage Vampire Cult by Frank Stanfield, published May twenty fifth, 2021. Thanks so much, Frank. Appreciate it. Great interview. Thank you. All right. Have a good
1: night.
0: Bye. Are you still there?